Welcome to episode 14 of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I sit down to discuss the body and the body in motion with James Earl. We discuss a lot of great topics. One that really stood out to me is the isolated view of the body. This occurs for multiple reasons, but as with everything in academia, our expression seems to be simplified and disjointed. We discuss the idea of tensegrity and different influencers of locomotion. We also discuss the spring mass model versus the pendulum model and how it takes into account soft tissues and tendons. We discuss contralateral patterning of locomotion as well as the role of slings in the body. We end our discussion by talking about how far mankind has removed itself from its natural state and the consequences of doing so. This is a great discussion on the body and one of its most natural functions, movement. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to episode 14 of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with James Earls, author of Born to Walk. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, yeah. So thank you very much, Jesse, for the for the invitation, putting this together. It's lovely to, to join you. So thank you. Yeah. So whenever I read your book, I, I just kind of was really wanted to get somebody who has a, a wonderful perspective on locomotion on the podcast, because if I have a pyramid kind of for my podcast and one of the things that's on there is locomotion is one of the pillars of it, because we as humans, we, we move every single day, whether we want to move in an athletic process or whether we just want to get from point A to point B. So it's just a natural occurrence and it's something yeah. that's a part of all of our lives. So that's why I'm really looking yeah. forward to, to sit down with you. I'd like to start out first by allowing you to introduce yourself to the audience, talk about some of the things you're involved in and uh, some of the things you have out there. Thank you. Um, thank you for the opportunity. I grew up in a little town just south of Belfast in Northern Ireland. And I, I, I guess like many people, I struggled through through school thinking, what the heck's the point of this? I um, struggled through university because that seemed like a better idea than actually getting a job. And after university, I thought, well, what am I going to do with my life? I, I, uh, I joined a, an ecumenical community that worked for peace and reconciliation in Ireland. So doing a lot of um, cross-community work, a lot of prejudice reduction, conflict resolution work. And it was while I was there that I got interested in massage bodywork. And it was just, we, we had the opportunity to just help people relax and, and take a breath and just kind of see these people who were coming from really quite stressful backgrounds just to kind of ease down, just kind of have a few moments of just, just normal breath, normal movement, normal kind of just sensation of them, themselves, because you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the history of Ireland, but um, I grew up through the 70s and 80s, so we, we had a lot, of, a lot of conflict, um, which also led into just a lot of, just a lot of stress for a lot of people. So that was in the, the early 90s, I decided to then train and actually not quite get a job, but be self-employed in, um, as a manual therapist of different forms. And I trained in aromatherapy, reflexology, kind of usual kind of basic massage bodywork approaches. And back in the in the 90s, there were very, there were very few good resources. Um, and I, I think you you're, you're too young to remember. And um, back in the 90s, there were actually there were like maybe three, four, five good books that were available. And and maybe I think that the US was probably better, better developed than the UK. And I started subscribing to a, an American massage magazine and 
um, just one day through the letterbox, it, it popped and there was an article in it called Understanding the Foot. And I thought, I studied reflexology, so I should understand the foot. I um, read it and it was the first time somebody had explained anatomy to me. And uh, that was a, an article by a guy called Thomas Myers. This was in 97. So very few people in, in Europe knew, knew Tom, even though he had, um, he had actually practiced in, in London for a while. And in 99, he, in the same magazine, advertised he was coming to the, the um, to actually coming to Dublin, doing kind of a tour of UK and, and Ireland uh, to talk about anatomy twins. And I thought, I have no idea what the heck anatomy twins is, but I thought I, I liked the way that he explained anatomy. So I went down to, to Dublin and sat in a workshop. And after three days, I thought, I still have no idea what the heck anatomy twins actually is, but I could see the, the overall vision. So I was interested by, by fascia, by, by kind of the ideas of structural integration and Rolfing that he was talking about, kind of the full body connections. And that was the, the first time kind of, you know, I, I had paid lip service to an holistic approach but it was the first time that somebody would kind of touched or scratched on the, the anatomical full body approach with his uh, anatomy twins model. So after 2000 with that, that workshop, I decided to train with him. And then 2005, I taught for him. I taught anatomy twins and um, his approach to, to structural integration through Europe and, and kind of feeding into the, the rest of the, the world a little bit um, for about 10 years. And during a few workshops, I would say something. And there was a period in around 2010, 2011, and I said something and a number of people in a series of workshops put up their hand and went, that sounds like something Gary Gray would say. I thought, I have no idea who the heck Gary Gray is. So after hearing it the third or fourth time, I thought I better Google. So who is Gary Gray? And I discovered all this, this Rima stuff, that's all of his work that he'd been talking about for 30, 40 years. So the father of function and kind of the, the whole chain reaction stuff. So I thought, well, I'd better, better investigate a little bit more. I jumped on a plane, flew over to, it was um, San Diego, sat in a room and thought, wow, this is fascinating. This is bringing, so at that stage, this was 2011, 2012, they were using a very um, skeletal based vocabulary so bones and joints and bones and joints. When the bone does this, the joint does that. When the bone, 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 I was thinking, I sat there and it's like, this is really interesting, but haven't they heard? It's not all about bones. It's it's all about fascia. It's all about this the, the myofascial and myofascial continuities and this and that. I think after the second day, I was kind of a little bit frustrated. It's like, why? When are they ever going to talk about the soft tissue? That so after the second day, I think maybe after the second or third pint of Guinness in the in the bar later, I thought this frustration that I'm feeling and kind of pointing the finger at them in, in conflict prejudice, conflict resolution, prejudice reduction work, they say that you know, whenever you notice yourself pointing the finger at somebody else, it's often an indication to actually point it back at yourself. And I thought, oh, why am I accusing them of being blinkered? That's actually an indication that I'm a little blinkered and have kind of bought into the whole fascia story a little bit. Perhaps is there a way that we can blend these two stories? Because we're, we're really just talking anatomy and one of the Gary Gray's. Are you familiar with Gary Gray? Yes, right, Gary Gray's work, of course. Yes. Um, and one of his things is the, the truth of movement. It's like, well, the truth of movement really is anatomy. Anatomy is movement. So I thought, well, surely you, there should be a blend. 
and and gradually started you know over that night i think maybe after a third or fourth pint again thought actually this is this is a perfect it's a perfect marriage and that was that was then the beginning of my trying to put together a a conjoined story that became the the born to walk book which you nicely thank you mentioned thank you um so looking at is there is there a way that we can actually track or trace anatomy from movement because i think it you know, it's one of my my soapboxes i think anatomy is taught the wrong way around i think we try to understand movement from anatomy rather than understanding anatomy from movement i think if if we would kind of just you know in in anatomy class if we would actually just look out the window for the first 5 or 10 minutes watch people going past or playing games in the in the field and go okay well what are they doing It's like okay well now let's look at the pictures of their insides so like, well, can we break that down can we see the the parallels can we see the the connections that way so from 2012 that that's kind of been my my aim or goal to to try and and blend the two kind of bring them together a little bit and it's going to proselytize about but learning anatomy from movement rather than the, the other way what you, what you're speaking to there at the end it makes a lot of sense because anytime i'm analyzing something in the world there are very few absolute truths out there i feel like you find a truth here you find a truth here and then things coalesce kind of in the middle basically i feel mm-hmm. like it it doesn't exist on ends of the spectrum essentially and kind of that's what you're speaking to there and i can speak to the same thing like whenever i'm observing the human body and i just want to make it anatomical and just look at anatomy it gets a bit uh, intimidating and i kind of get lost in translation i've learned so much more i'm an athletic uh, preparation coach so i learned so much more by watching my athletes move on the field and seeing what their drivers are whether than looking at different isolated musculature and and then trying to go from there so uh, i can could totally agree with everything that you just said there so before we jump into the first concept a lot of this is going to uh be centered around the idea of fascia. So just for anybody that's not familiar with fascia, can we go over the sure. role of fascia in the body, what it's composed of? Kind of give a little definition on that. Sure. Um it's a collagen based connective tissue. It's the the stuff that basically holds us together. Um so we're all I'm I'm sure everyone's kind of done some basic anatomy and familiar with the idea of the epimesium, paramesium, endomesium. So the, those kind of silver bags that hold the muscle together at different different levels, whether it's the, just the, the the individual fiber, the bundles of fibers, or the the whole muscle itself. Um, but in a way that we've been traditionally taught anatomy, it's like okay, there's the endomesiums, there's the muscle. and then at the end there's the tendon and then the tendon goes to in attaches to maybe the bone or to the periosteum and then we have the ligament well actually if you were to take a, a scalpel in a certain way you could show that 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 tissue is actually continuous so there's no beginning or end from the from the the mesiums around the muscle into the tendon into the periosteum into the ligament into the joint capsule and so this stuff is is holding all of us together so the kind of the classic analogy is like the the orange it's like so sort of cut across the the hemisphere of an orange and all of that that fibrous pith material it's just it's continuous it's just holding those juicy cells of orange juice and together so no beginning no no end to it 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 gives us the the form of each structure so it kind of def- it's 
and it has this these paradoxes and this one of the difficulties with anatomy. Anatomy is the is literally the dissection of the body, and it's the understanding of each of those dissections. And so we have a language of dissection and language of separation, and that that's a that's a really useful and necessary tool to have. But it also kind of brings us away from the reality of the body, which is actually it's a connected whole, and it's one so the the tissue that connects us is the, the, the fascial tissue and it has different different densities, slightly different percentages of collagen type fibers. So they, they seem like the number of collagen fibers changes every week, anything from 15 to 22, 24 in the literature. So all or every fiber has a slightly different characteristic in terms of um, elasticity, strength, brittleness. So we, we have all of that kind of connection and then in between is like the, like the, the orange it's like, well, if you cut across the, the, the hemisphere of the orange, it's like the, there's, the segments don't actually exist. You can see that there are kind of, there are stronger kind of barriers, lines, however you want to describe it there. But actually it's only in the peeling and in the separation that we create. The separation is only in the dissection of the orange that we create separateness. And it's the same in the body. So rather than that kind of, and dry fibrous connection between the segments. We have a very loose fluid, um, fluid heavy, I guess, um, fluid rich fascial tissue, the, the loose connective tissue in between to, that allows the, the bicep and tricep, for example, to, to glide past one another while still staying connected. Yeah. And speaking about fascia, I just want to kind of talk about some of the things that might cause fascia to move in a different manner than it's intended to the mm-hmm. uh, hydration is, is a major issue with fascia, correct? Yes. Um, so the, so that loose connective tissue, the, one of the elements of the, the fascial system is really dependent on reliance on the, the balance between hyaluronin and, and water. So hyaluronin is a is a hydrophobic or sorry hydrophilic. It likes it likes water. It likes to attach to water, and it's it's binding with water is essential to allow that gliding to happen. And there are lots of dynamics that would affect its ability to do that. Our own level of hydration is is one of those, but it, it's it's also quite quite commonly hormonal fluctuations. So any injury, obviously, any um, state of inflammation um, will all affect it. So to stop that, that, that gliding, so to stop the relative motion between our, our, our segments. Okay. So one of the first topics, if anybody has ever read your book, Born to Walk, uh, one of the first major cornerstones of the book is the concept of tensegrity uh, mm-hmm. and the fact of it really allows you to begin to view things through the lens which you're proposing within the book. So if we can spend a little bit of time talking about the concept of tensegrity, and again, we've talked about the fascial system, but viewing it through that rather than isolated mus- musculature or an architectural viewpoint. Again, I was doing another uh, chatting with somebody else uh, recently, and I realized actually I unlearned the idea of the body being connected whenever I went to anatomy class. Um, for some reason, I, I remember I had a kind of strong memory of learning to ride a bike when I was, I don't know, six or seven. And I couldn't understand that I w- I'd finally kind of almost mastered it. And I was, I was riding along, pedaling along, and I, I nearly fell off 
It was like I had a, a strong wobble. I was like, why did I wobble? It was all, all I did was turn to look over my, my shoulder. But it's like something happened with the handlebars. So, and I, I remember kind of experimenting. It's like, oh, okay. So whenever I turn my head, my shoulders turn. And when my shoulders turn, my hands move and my hands are connected. So hold on. My head is connected to my neck, which are connect is connected to my shoulders, which connected to my arms. My arms are connected to the handlebars and that turns the wheel. Um, and so I, I learned that. And then I also remember that I learned that whenever running, I was running to catch a bus and the bus was coming from behind me and I turned to look as I was running and of course went over on my ankle because my whole body turned a little bit in response. So I think there's, again, that, that normal everyday experience. And then we go into anatomy class and go, oh, okay, so let's learn about the rotation of C1 and C2 and all of that kind of, um, range of motion. And we, we learn the range of motion tests. We learn... And perhaps in, in SNC, we learn about the, you know, the, the isolated strengthening or stretching kind of techniques. And so we've, we've created this, this understanding of the body and this approach to kind of remedial and to um, strengthening, um, which is very, which are very effective, but they kind of encourage the idea that all you need to do is flex and extend your elbow, flex and extend your knee, flex and extend your ankle or wherever, whichever joint is, is responsible. But actually on the field or running for the bus or on the bike, it's actually much more interdependent. So, so there's that reality of, again, everything being connected. Tensegrity approach to anatomy would also say, well, actually the bones don't really touch each other, we kind of again get this idea from from anatomy books that there's these kind of in, um, strong interfaces and connections. You know, my first lesson in anatomy that I remember the three functions of the skeleton system. I have to try and change my pronunciation. I say skeletal, but the in the US people go what? Um, well, so I love skeletal. all the different English uh, pronunciations. Like I'm always, <laughs> I always love to find those uh, those rare words that stand out. Yes. So we have skeletal and cervical. We put in an extra whatever diphthong or syllable, uh, syllable for the for the cervical spine, just in case you get confused between cervix and cervical. Um, but anyway, so tensegrity. Uh, so the, yes, the the idea of the the bones touching each other. Well, actually, there should be a little bit of space. And one of the, the main names behind the, the, the recent uh, interest in tensegrity anatomy is a guy called Stephen Levin, Dr. Stephen Levin. He was an um, orthopedic uh, surgeon, you know, relatively for us in our world, everyday kind of example. If you're looking at an x-ray of a healthy knee, what's one of the defining features of a healthy knee? Well, there should be, if you're looking at the, at the x-ray, there should be a joint space. There should be space between those two bones. Mm. Most of, many of those x-rays should be taken weight-bearing. Well, what's in that space? Joint fluid. Well, what's holding the joint fluid in place? He said, it just went, oh, well, joint capsule. And I can't remember the figures exactly, but so forgive me if I'm a little off. So how much joint fluid is in that held in the joint capsule? Oh, so 60 milliliters could, could be more. Don't, don't hang me for being wrong. Okay, so how much? Have you seen, seen a swollen knee joint? 
Like, well, I hadn't, but many people hadn't. It's like, yeah, how much fluid is in a swollen knee joint? Like, well, it can be anything up, you know, 160, 200 milliliters or something. I, again, don't know. So how can a joint capsule that's capable of expanding to 200, to that volume, 200 milliliters, contain, hold the pressure for 60? It just doesn't doesn't hold true. It's not it's not the compression of the fluid. There's something else that's happening, and so he then kind of references a lot of um, older work that was done by Buckminster Fuller, who was an architect designer, uh, who based a lot of his ideas on tensegrity on the the, the work of a, an artist sculptor called um, Snelson. And Snelson had had developed this, this a new way of suspending um, solid struts through the tensioning of cables, so that the struts were not touching one another. And so, in to put that into anatomy, it's the tension in the soft tissue that holds the bones apart, that maintains that space allows them to kind of to maintain the fluid or the space or the, the, um, and prevent the approximation, prevent the, the wear and tear and the, the cartilage. So we're really reliant on balanced tension in the soft tissues around. And that really obviously excites me as a, as a soft tissue therapist. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's, that's been my job. Um, finally, you've given me an image of what I've been trying to do for the last 20 years. So that was, that was refreshing. I don't know how good the, the image is, but this is a, Kind of a, a, an idea of a tensegrity torso and, and legs. So each of those bony struts, the, the dowels, are suspended by these, these, these elastics. So it's supposed to be kind of representing the, the pelvis, femurs, and then up into the, into the torso. So it's kind of a sternum and ribcage. So each of the bones kind of floating rather than the skeleton supporting which was, I think that's where it was going. The, my first lesson in, in, in um, anatomy that the skeleton supports the rest of the body. So, well, no, it doesn't. Take away everything else in body other than skeleton and the skeleton just falls to the floor. So it requires the tension from the, from the soft tissue. Yeah, it's, it's a total reversal. Like I don't typically put up the video so they won't be able to see it, but I, I'll say it again, read the book and you'll see some great illustrations with this and explanations, but you can just search uh, Tensegrity and you'll see these different structures. And what he's talking about is you've got like these cables or these wires essentially, and they're what's supporting uh, that structure rather than looking at, it's, it's so easy again to put your blinders on and see the big bone there and then miss all the small su supporting uh, structures around it. And, uh, you know, I had something yesterday, I was working out and I got really tight on one side of my body. And I was like, if I'm tight right here, I should feel tightness on this contralateral side. So, you know, most people would go and they would stretch that, that, uh, affected side they feel like so I kind of was cautious and I kept working out and then lo and behold about five minutes later exactly where I thought on the contralateral side it would pop up boom it flared up and you know used to I would have just been thinking oh hamstrings tight I need to do something I need to address this well 
my QL was a QL on the opposite side or, you know, that area around there is what fired it up. So we'll get into uh, the idea of slings and all that later on, because that, that, you know, closely uh, is it, it's around that area as well. So that's, that's a great explanation because that's kind of the starting point. Now let's get into a little bit more specifics about movement and locomotion. There's a lot of different things. There's so many different factors that can affect locomotion, but some of the ones that I have listed are neurological, uh, visceral, mm -hmm. emotional, and then we've talked a little bit about structure. So let's just talk locomotion and the factors and how they affect it. I would have to say, put my hand up and say, I, neurologically, I'm, I leave that to the, to the neurologist. That is like that, yeah. That's a library in and of itself. Yeah. Um, there's, there's just so much in there. Um, and in terms even of, of motor control, even there, you know, at the moment, there are, there are conflicting theory. Well, not, maybe not necessarily conflicting, but, but um, alternate theories, let's say. So, yes, there's a strong neurological component. Obviously, it can be affected by an, any kind of neurological deficit. Um, so any kind of brain injury and, and uh, disease that's affecting the, the neural uh, pathways. Viscerally, I think that's probably a re also a, a really under underappreciated influence. There's so many um, potential visceral reflexes. Um, again, this is not my my area of expertise, but certainly so the the ability of you know, common kind of example would be the the kidneys creating um, low back pain and you know, uh, liver also kind of, um, reflexing onto uh, either abdominals or into the into the back and into the shoulder. So they it can be really important to to just be appreciative of the the potential um, for that the way. In which the the, the visceral contents, so all of you know, basically all of the, the insides. We're talking about the the, the fascial um, anatomy. One of the nice things with the the, the, the locomotor um, portion of our anatomy is that it's separated mostly from the visceral component. So the viscera pretty much hang off the front of the spine. So they're connected to the front of the spine in their fascial bags that have a lot of that loose connective tissue. So in terms of most locomotion, the bits that move most are actually is the front rather than the spine. The spine, of course, does move a lot, but it moves more into, into flexion than into extension. So the, the connections from the, from the viscera kind of separated out from most of the extension that we go into. So we've got, they've got lots of fluidity, lots of ability to separate. So they, you know, whenever we go into that extend, extension, either of, a, of a, a throw or a kick, or even that kind of toe off position or running, that extended, long extended position that we're in, most of the stress and strain that's being created through the, the kind of the, the locomotor system is quite separate from the, from the viscera. So they do get a little bit of, of work, a little bit of kind of massaging through kind of the psoas connection. So psoas, kind of deep hip, hip flexure that's coming up, continues with the, the diaphragm. So there is a kind of a massaging that can happen with the, the leg extension, but it doesn't, the, the viscera don't get the same um, strong strains that the, the rest of the locomotor system would, would be, be um, getting. And I think that the third of your... Um, Topics will be the emotional, and I think that's that's an extension from. So in um, some studies, we talk about posture. So 
posture is so it's not just that kind of standing anatomical position position posture it's everything from you know so obviously sitting at desk typing posture it's you know it's it's podcast posture it's you know it's everything that we do and that translates into into locomotion so any emotional upset can change some of the the, the way in which we we act, we move. It's you know, when we are depressed, we are you know often when we look at other people, we can see that they are quite literally depressed. They are squished. They are squashed. They're 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 brought down in the front. They are down. They're so that's going to reduce the uh, ability, perhaps, or the want or the desire to go into into kind of opening up into extension. Um, and of course, it can be we can compensate around those and kind of you know, and you know, falsely you know, hold hold ourselves upright, but that creates an a kind of a, a false tension. It's not a natural toned balance. So again, it's kind of it's thinking of that that tensegrity, and one of the one of the beautiful things with the tensegrity model is that it starts to open our eyes, ears, senses to the the idea of complexity, which you alluded to a little bit, um, it's like there are no simple, straightforward answers. There, everything is everything is connected. It's even emotions and you know, kidneys and livers and and digestive systems like intertwined. So, you know, there's no separation really. In, you know, the the, um, the gut and the intestinal flora that's kind of been a, a focus of the last decade. Like, you know, that strongly affects our emotions our emotions strongly affect the choices of food that we have which affects the the gut flora and you know all of the the inflammatory responses in the in the viscera it's going to you know change the way that we move and the way that we um, express ourselves so again it's going to that that intertwining that interrelationship the, the the connections so emotional huge um just we just don't feel powerful we've you know we've we're done we're part of your your work is really trying to also encourage the athletes to find that position or that that state of flow that's not easy whenever you know you've had a stress horrible morning or fortnight or year that many of us have have gone through so oh god i we could keep on going with it with emotions yeah, and then all, all that stuff is is great like a couple of things you said they're like number one i've just begun to to begin looking at like viscera and the way it moves whenever we move never mm-hmm. wanted to even take it into account like most people whenever you're preparing athletes you're just thinking they have tight this or what it, but whenever you begin to look like the compression and expansion that occurs within movements and the way that we just talked about like the gut shifting descending pelvic floors, how that would encourage hips to, to move and all those different things. So that's kind of what's what's led me. As I was reading your book, I was simultaneously reading other things that were talking a lot about compression, expansion of the body and, and viscera, how it descends, how it ascends in different portions of movement. So, yep. you know, it, it does uh, play a major role in the emotional thing. That kind of ties back into the neurological sense too, because like the emotional state of sympathetic and parasympathetic and, and, you know, being extremely stressed or like you've referenced, you can't be in a flow state if you're extremely stressed, like flow state is like Zen. And what we're speaking to, like, if you really want to look at movement and view it, it's that person's life is being 
played out in front of your eyes, essentially, if you look deep enough into it, how are they stressed? What emotions are they going to? What, what, what are their limitations? There may be neurological limitations. There may be other joint angle limitations and everything, but their life is essentially playing out in front of your eyes. If you had enough time, uh, yeah. obviously prep coaches don't have time to interview every kid and, and ask them a hundred questions, but no. it's playing out in front of you. If you're looking at it in this, like you said, uh, linked sense that we've kind of been referring to. So yep. another major factor that's taking into account locomotion and, and views it in a different way, I first encountered this by looking at sprinting. It's the spring mass model. So I'd like to talk about the spring mass model and how it takes into account soft tissue. And I'd also like it to talk about resilience and stiffness in reference to gait. So I, many, many people have come across the, the pendulum model of gait. Um, pendulum model is, it's, I, I don't know why it's still in the literature. Um, it's so outdated. Um, it's been updated and kind of and made more accurate by bringing in the, the spring mass model. So there are similarities, but the, it's not until you actually look at the elastic ability of the, the fascial system that kind of it, it starts to make sense. A pendulum turned upside down is just going to fall over. So the inverted pendulum model just does not work. Um, the spring mass model then brings us into all of the benefits that the fascial system can afford that, um, that really the, the muscle and skeleton systems together. So as soon as you get uh, momentum, ground reaction force, they're going to have to be control, those forces are going to have to be controlled, decelerated. And one of the major benefits for the um, our movement efficiency is the elasticity within that fascial system. So that that's, um, those collagen fibers can stretch and then recoil with a certain amount of the, the energy that was loaded into them. So there, the, the collagen fibers are kind of the, the springs within the system. So there's there's an efficiency within each stretch that happens with because of the, the recoil ability. So if we take the walking as the example, that's that toe-off toe off position when you're in that, that long extension, you're going to have a certain amount of load into all of the, um, the, the hip flexors and particularly into also then the, the toe um, flexors. So in that kind of toe extended position. And a lot of references kind of leave it there. Go, okay, so we got this elastic recoil. And I don't know about in, in your world, but in, in my world, it's all been, it's, everything's been about the fascia for the last 20 years. And, and actually, if we, again, take a complexity to integrity approach, it's not just the fascial tissue that's important. The stretch of that fascial tissue is being controlled, monitored, by the kind of interaction between the muscle tissue and the mechanoreceptors. So as you go into a stretched position, so the hip extension, the toe extension, the, the, the velocity, the momentum is being monitored by the, the mechanoreceptors and then the muscle can change its tone according to need of the movement. And that could, that could happen beyond just like an isolated area, correct? I, I feel like whenever I read in your book, it said that it could happen over a larger area. The response in one area of the mechanoreceptors in the fascial system could influence upstream substantially. Yes. And this is the, the work of um, Professor Hein. I'm just showing that you, know, you, you cannot stretch just you know, the, the, the flexor longus. It's like you, you, it just can't be done. 
you know, you kind of know that, but it's not just it's not just the other toe flexors that would be stretched. It's actually you're changing the 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 strain levels, or you're creating strain into also into the extensors. So there's a change in tone. In there is a movement that can be perceived. Uh, you're also so, and that movement is often often stiffening the antagonists. So even bicep tricep, if I shorten contract my bicep, there's still a stiffening, tensioning, a toning of the fascial baggings around the tricep, and that increase in fascial tone helps to increase the potential force output of the contained muscle, and also that change in strain or the change in tone of the, the fascial tissue is also what stimulates the mechanoreceptors. So all of those, the Golgi organs and the Pacinis and um, Ruffinis, they're actually held in place by the fascial tissue, which kind of makes sense because the fascial tissue is the, the medium through which movement, much movement, transfers through the body. So it kind of makes sense to put the perceivers of movement into the medium that transfers the force so there's kind of again lots in in there that so it's the there's the continuity there's the so the communication so change in force is a stimulation as well as a change in force so i increase the stiffness of tricep it's information to the mechanoreceptors i can then also hopefully unconsciously change the tone of the tricep muscle so that the tricep can do what, if it needs to, do what it needs to do in order to manage those forces. And because it's been, the, the fascial baggings are being stiffened, it's in a better position to do so. So all of the, you know, it's very, it's maybe debated a little bit, but all of the, the compression clothing, the idea of the, one idea of the compression clothing, clothing is that with a compression, you can increase the potential force output of the, 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 the muscles inside and essentially with the compression clothing you're trying to do what the fascial system can kind of do for itself so if i contract bicep i'm actually helping the or increasing the power potential output of of tricep or with the toe flexors and extensors so again we have this antagonistic agonist antagonists mentality from anatomy but actually the, the body is much more ecumenical and co cooperative because it's it's sharing information and the change in tension in one area is helping the potential force output in another. Yeah, so just a couple of things to chain on to that before we jump to another topic. One of the biggest things that I've discovered in the last couple of years as I've continued to study and what I've tried to build into my athletes, used to I would assume if I can put a lot of force into the ground, that's just going to be natural that the return rate is going to be desirable essentially. But like one of the biggest, like, I guess, continuum things that I have going on here, I call everything a yin and yang because it's a complete opposite. I'm asking you to put an immense amount of force, allow for the tissue to deform. And then I'm asking you to be extremely reactive off the ground. Somewhere in there, there has to be an immense amount of relaxation to allow, we've talked about agonists and antagonists here, mm -hmm. but I'm saying all this kind of because it's a major interest of mine. And I was just wondering, what are some of the, you feel like are some of the biggest things that would discourage reactivity off of the ground in an athletic sense? Well, uh, you don't have to cover it all, but just like, <laughs> you know, basic things that you. you so basically like. one, uh, so footwear. So we've been talking about the environment. So footwear, 
can be something. So the obvious would be so anything that's kind of compressive to compressive to the feet and um, preventing uh, foot splay. So the ability for the bones to spread is going. The bone spreading helps to stiffen the fascial bags, and the stiffening of the fascial bags helps to increase the potential force output of the in, in, um, intrinsic muscles of the foot, for example. So anything that's going to restrict the, the range of motion, the natural range of motion, natural reaction, um, so even limited ankle dorsiflexion, um, would really prevent or could prevent some of that force then going to the into the Achilles tendon, and because the Achilles tendon is going to be one of the biggest springs for that that reaction. So the so there's the environment, then um, the um, the ground itself. So if the ground is soft, you're not going to get that that reaction force coming back. So and of course there's a there's a balance to be had. So the difference between concrete and um, or I guess you're mostly playing on astroturf rather than grass. Um, but on a on a soggy grass field, if you ever had the, the, the misfortune of playing a game of yeah. grass, yes. um, it's going to be a very different reaction. And I guess the, the, you know, there's lots of science I'm sure put into the into making the, the astroturf that, that kind of happy balance. So limited range of motion is going to be then a structural factor, and also then lim, um, any kind of strength limitations. So strength limitation. So I, if you if you're going to get me jumping off, you know, oh got a, a sixty centimeter box, I'm I'm going to you know fully laden with helmet and all the the rest of the gear, you know, build me up to that, you know, get me at yeah, maybe sixty centimeters, not not that much, but you know, build me up to you know just skipping, you know, then skipping with my helmet, put the gear on, so building up the the strength and integrity. And then also then alignment. So a huge part of the deceleration. So it's um, if you're looking at the stretch shortening cycle, kind of the, the movement, contra movement reaction. So in order to kind of fully load, effectively load, efficiently load the tissue, I want the joint alignment to be proficient, to be to be positive. So if I have skewed a skewed reaction so it's the when i land i'm going to be you know just a simple jump when i land i should knee flex hip flex and ankle dorsiflex but if my foot is skewed for whatever reason then my knee is going to go somewhere else if my knee goes somewhere else i'm not going to load the, the achilles tendon in the same way so so that would be environment strength and alignment would be that my kind of first go-tos. Yeah, all, the, all those things make a lot of sense. You, you mentioned a lot about the foot, so we'll go ahead and jump. You, you mentioned some things about the foot there, and that's that's been another thing that I've been extremely interested in. Like, I never would have thought that I would be training athletes' feet as much as I do now and their ankles. Yep. Uh, it makes a lot of sense when we actually think about things, right? We focus so much, I feel like, on hips and, and these other areas, but the ankle and the foot complex are, are really where the play's happening before the hip ever has an opportunity to get involved. So I I'd like to talk a little bit, and it's going to expand really nicely on what we just talked about, the role of the foot in energy conservation and stance uh, stability and shock absorption. And we can also talk a little bit about rockers there too, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that if the rocker uh, is off, that you're going to have some efficiency removed from the equation. Yep. Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing, uh, so the, the, the arched or domed 
half domed foot. Um, I prefer the, the the image of the half dome. It it, it gives more more kind of overall impression of the the the, the interactivity, the the completeness of the foot, rather than the anatomy um, medial longitudinal longitudinal arch transverse arch story. So kind of still useful still useful vocabulary, but it kind of inhibits our understanding of a full foot reaction. So that, that whole foot should on, on landing, whichever it may be, forefoot, midfoot, or even the heel strike, the, the natural reaction of the foot should be to open up into some form of a pronation response. And that ability to kind of unlock from that half-domed, right raised, arched position, helps to load some of that elastic energy into the very dense fascial tissues that, that are um, contained in the, the plantar surface of the foot. Um, so it's it's a huge part of running and well running probably almost any athletic ability. A lot of the work of Dan Lieberman would say, well actually we don't in walking, we actually don't need the arch or the, the half dome to actually deform that much because the forces are much lower. So whether you believe some of his, his work was kind of looking at um, comparative and evolutionary anatomy, he said, well, so our the modern form said, you know, we de- he, his idea is we developed the, the, the domed foot for running and for walking. We don't need it so much because we've got the other rockers of the foot, so the, the heel, the, the um, ankle rocker, so the tibia gliding over the, the top of the talus, the ball of the foot, and then rolling into, into toe extension with the momentum walking, that's that's enough. You know, we've just we we don't need it in the same way. So one of the one of the big things, sorry, I've been probably it was one of 30, almost 30, well, 32 years in the business. So you see different kind of areas of interest as we go through. So I, I started with the kind of aromatherapy fad when you know, back in the 90s, and there was a reflexology fad in, in the UK in the late 90s. And we went in the fascial fad between 20, 2000 and 2010. And then we got into functional fads. And, not, you know, and in there, it was all about the glute max. Like, you know, if you had a knee problem, a foot problem, a back problem, going through a divorce, it's all because you had a weak loop max. And now we're at, and these, these are all wonderful and productive phases to go through because we get a better understanding of the glute max and its roles. And I, you know, at the moment, and thank goodness for it, I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the importance of the foot. So the, the more understanding of the foot that we can have, then the better we're going to be able to understand the, the rest of the tensegrity of the, of the body. But it's, it was never all about the fascia. It was never all about glute max. And it's, it's not all about the foot, but that is our main points of interaction. You know, we are mostly starting and ending our movement with our feet in contact with the ground. So if we don't have a, a healthy, adaptive, strong foot that can both pronate, go to so some people talk, talk about being a, a mobile adapter and then have the ability to supinate and go to the, the rigid lever position, then probably you shouldn't be on the pitch or in the field, as you might say. You I play prefer on fields pitch, or pitches? You, prefer, you play on fields. I prefer the pitch though. I, I watch a lot of <laughs> football, as you guys call it. We call it soccer over here, but I prefer pitch. 
but all of that makes a, a lot of sense because it everything travels upstream like we're referring to like you referred to with the orange like it's you can't separate it the ground reaction force will travel upstream and the way in which the foot interacts with the ground is going to determine how that travels upstream to the knee to the hip and on upward because we're gonna i have two more conversation pieces if you have time i want to talk about contralateral slings and then end out with a kind of a a chance to talk about modern day populations and, and kind of why we have so many different movement issues. So all that makes a lot of sense. And with the rockers too, with running, these rockers happen, but they happen, uh, you know, much more rapidly. And it has a, a lot to do with stability uh, and that final toe off. Like that's, that's really where my uh, observation of the foot began was looking at rockers and the way that you get to toe off and how some people are inefficient at toe off because of that. So everything you said there makes a lot of sense. So one of our last talking pieces here, I would like to talk about the idea of contralateral movements and how we have slings that occur throughout our body. Because again, just take time to go observe people move. You'll, mm -hmm. I, you see opposites occurring all the time, essentially. So can we talk about the slings that occur through the body? Because that's a major cornerstone as far as like fascia and the integration of the tensegrity system. If you were just to... <laughs> Look at the kind of the, the the simple superficial anatomy pictures. You just see pectoralis major on the front, and kind of follow the different different fiber directions. You got that kind of fan like approach of the of pectoralis major. If you take so, if you take the horizontal, you would go almost straight across from one pectoralis major to the other pectoralis major. So you've got a, almost a kind of straight across connection between the two shoulder girdles. But if you take the uh, lower kind of oblique diagonal um, portion of um, pectoralis major kind of leads down into the abdominals and different so different books and different, so you've got Fleming you've got Thomas Myers talk about these kind of fascial myofascial continuities um, and I, I, I just think we don't we don't need to discuss whether is it rectus abdominals or is it external oblique who cares um, you just see the continuity of intent in those fiber directions and so that you lead in from the external obliques, rectus abdominis. If you take the external obliques, it, it leads directly across into internal obliques. Uh, this work of Carla Stecco and her team at the University of Padua said that actually the internal and external obliques, it's one muscle. They're fascially con continuous across the linea alba. Um, it's just, you know, somebody once upon a time said two separate, but, you know, that, that's, it's just anatomy. It's just vocabulary. It's actually one muscle going from, top left to bottom right and vice versa on the other side. And if you think about the movements that we do, you know, so um, how does your quarterback throw a ball? Their strong arm back and the opposite leg forward. You know, it's like, well, why? Why do they do that? Why do they not throw with you know, both legs in anatomical position as we're supposed to in kind of neutral, maintain pelvic stability, engage their core and throw with their arm? Because they really arm, stiff. <laughs> it would it would not go that far yeah um so why do we go in that position well it's because of that that long chain of muscles or chain of myofascial the the continuity is the connection and it's it's kind of it's just ingrained we we again we we learn that as it as kids as soon as you start trying to throw a ball that little bit farther to try and hit your big brother in the head or something, whatever, whatever your goal in life is um, at that age. If you want to get further, you, you just, you experiment with how to get that, that extra power. So we've got these 
contralateral um, relationship on the front. And you can actually see it as you go deeper. If you take off pectoralis major, you start seeing the intercostal um, internal and external um, alignment. You can go like, a little bit deeper into um, diaphragm, so as less so, but you got certainly through the intercostals and the, into, the, into the thorax. And then if you flip right to the back, um, very commonly talked about a lot, the, the connection from latissimus dorsi, thoracal lumbar fascia, opposite glute max. And glute max, um, two portions. One portion goes to the uh, iliotibial band and the other portion maybe goes to vastus lateralis. But you've got a connection from your upper, one upper limb to the opposite lower limb. I'm like, well, how do you decelerate from that throw? So if your quarterback is trying to throw that 50-yard pass or whatever it may be, what position do they go into as they decelerate? Well, you've got that one leg forward and the opposite leg is coming forward into flexion. Um, again, just a perfect deceleration through that um, opposite sling. So um, even the, the position, the, the contralateral movement of running and, and walking use that, that same kind of um, potential mechanism. The faster we walk, the bigger we, we stronger, stiffer we make those connections because um, we make the movement a little bit Bit bigger or we go a little bit tighter a little bit more tone in the in the tissue to to, to get it to connect it and again you kind of can go down uh, into the deeper levels you got the intercostals at the back you got then get into some of the, the lateral rotators of the hip so there's lots of these kind of overlaps and um, different levels of tissue crossing more or less or fewer joints as you so fewer joints as you go in but they're kind of following the same grain of tissue so helping control and create the, the same direction of movement and there are a lot of those diagonal oblique like um, relationships yeah i have a podcast coming up in a couple of weeks and this is there are no absolutes like we've already spoke to but like whenever you're looking at the contralateral method and all that, you're, you're kind of looking at things in a bit of a spiral a little bit. And mm -hmm. the body is not just linear. It's not just from, you know, straight down or straight across. Like the, the, if you look at movement and you really observe it, there's a huge rotational element in every single movement, however linear it may appear at first. So, I mean, there's a, there's and in your book too, and I've already talked about this on a previous podcast, we talk about, all everything we spoke to, we try and simplify language for academia to make sense. But like whenever we're studying planes, there's movement occurring in all planes simultaneously. And the same thing that we're talking about here, the rotational element, like our DNA is in a spiral, like down to the to our granular level, we are a spiral essentially. And again, there are no absolutes, but that's kind of what was my aha moment, how all these things attach together and you just keep growing and growing out until you see the whole body. And you see the yeah. whole movement. So that that was one of the things that really drove me to examine the contralateral uh, na nature of movement and slings. So the last thing to end out with, I'd like to give you an uh, opportunity to talk about what do you feel like the drivers are in our modern lifestyle that seem to heavily influence our natural locomotive processes for better or for worse? Wow. Um, that's a, it's a really important question. And I think so that what we are being we are being disconnected from the, the natural drivers. So you know, we are engaged in, employed to sit in front of computers and either type at them or to be entertained by them or to talk to somebody else via them or do something. So we are being 
actively encouraged by our environment to be immobile. And that's a dynamic over the really over the last 70 years. Um, I was reading James Nestor's book on breath, and he was he was talking about well, actually, there was a lot of the research that he was reading, the understanding of the breath that he was talking about, the, the carbon dioxide oxygen levels. Mm-hmm. He said all of this work had been done in the early 1900s. And then in around 1950, it disappeared. And we started taking drugs and using different other interventions for the breath. And I was like, what, what happened in, ni- in around 1950s? Well, there was TV. And after TV, there was the computer. And after the computer, we got the bloody mobile phones and everything else. So we are, our world is getting smaller. Um, our world is getting more convenient. Um, and I'm not the only person to, to talk about this. Um, everything is designed for ease when it, it shouldn't be. We should be designing our life in a way that actually helps us, encourages us to, to, to walk that little bit more. And there are, there are many ways in which, or many, many strategies that you, one can put in place and just say, I'm, I'm going to walk to the shop. I'm not going to park as close as I can to the door. I'm not going to use the trolley. I'm doing a smaller shop. Let's do more shops, more frequent shops and smaller so I can actually carry the bags. It's like, well, then I get the carrying and then I get the lifting and I get a little bit of shoulder work. And so I think we should be, we should be looking at, at strategies. How can I rearrange my life where I'm actually just moving for my life so I don't need to go you know not I'm not saying shouldn't go to the gym but I don't need to go to the gym are there other ways and other kind of tweaks that I can put into my my environment can I make it that I have to you know I even do that just do calf raises while the kettle boils can I you know do a, a few lat raises or delt raises or whatever um whilst I'm you know, logging on in the morning. You know, is there something? Can I can I deliberately squat in and out of the chair every time that I sit in front of the computer? So putting other other kind of um, dynamics in as much as possible. And um, keeps coming back to Daniel Lieberman. Daniel Lieberman, if you're not familiar with him, he's just I think it's about six months ago published a, a, his new book called Exercised, um, which is kind of his his uh, rallying call. For, for this is just we are we are going into a period of disevolution. We are just moving less and creating more and more strategies to move less. And we should be in creating environments that actually encourage us to just get out and walk, run, talk to people, see people. And um, my apologies for being Euro- Eurocentric, but I'm scared of what is happening in the UK and Europe because. We see this wave. We we have seen what is happening in the U.S. over the last twenty years with the development of out of town malls and convenient shopping and Amazon and online shopping, and the 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 tyranny of the car. It's like everything is designed around the car and the the loss of the high streets. And we are we are just going down exactly the same track, even though for the last twenty years we've been going in Europe going. That's that's not good. It's, it's not good to move so little. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it seems to be an innate, well, one, it's good for the economy. So we'll keep going that direction because that's what matters. 
Like, well, actually, no, we do. Um, and a huge part of our health and well-being is movement. Yeah, and everything you said there, the further you get away from nature, the more miserable you're bound to be is, is, is what I would think. And it's not easy to do. You talked about the computer and the phone. I myself, like, I, I can't help but to be on it a lot. I do podcasts. I, I'm on social media. I, I do all these other things. It's, it's a necessity. But, like, even if we were to break it down to the eyes, like, so I had a podcast on this earlier, like, all day you're in convergence focused on something in, directly in front of you. Whereas evolution, through our evolution, we had to scan the horizon. Our eyes had to diverge. And that, that even – is going to influence locomotion. So just small things, like not even just sitting down all day, but what we're doing with our own eyes are, are, are extremely going to affect, and we, we won't think about it because it doesn't, it's not something that's going to pop up into your mind, uh, you know, just naturally. So there's so many different unnatural processes. So what do we do? Uh, like you said, we fill it with prescriptions or we fill it with more unnatural things. So what, what you're speaking to there is, a basic return to nature in a uh, sense that's sustainable. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it can really start by moving because we're built to move. That's what this whole conversation has focused around. So the last thing I want to give you is an opportunity. You have more than one book out. So if you just want to throw the books you have out there and any courses or any other things you're involved in before we jump off. Yep. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, I well, Born to Walk is the, the kind of main text. The other text I've written is uh, co-written with uh, Thomas Myers. It's, fact, it's uh, a manual therapy text on fascial release for structural balance. So kind of looking at mostly postural kind of um, analysis and, and how you can use manual therapy to create a little bit more balance. And my lockdown project was actually a book on the, on the foot. So um, that should be hitting the, the, the stores. Uh, sometime in around uh, November, so you can keep an eye out for that. And then we have a, a range of courses that we offer, or did offer, at least until um, the previous year. Um, they'll be coming up on, online again. And you can get in um, get um, information on those through born, uh, the website Born to Move, so just borntomove.com, or follow on Instagram, Born to Walk or Born to Move. Um, it should should come up. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to link your Instagram account and I'm also sorry, it's going to be on Amazon, but I'll probably throw the Amazon link for born to walk and the other text in the show notes as well. This has uh, been a great conversation. It's, it's been wonderful to sit down and just think about some of the different processes that affect something that we do every day. We breathe, we move, be it in athletic movements or be it just to get to your car or to outside to walk around, which would probably be a better solution. But it's, it's a part of our human process. So it's been great to sit down, pick your mind on this, and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for sitting down with me. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jesse. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. It truly was an honor to listen to his examination of the body and how it moves. Check out the show notes for links to James's book, Born to Walk. If you haven't read it and are into helping people move and move more efficiently, you need to check it out. Also, I have links to James's courses he provides and his Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so. <laughs> <laughs>